I know you expect to hear a Christmas um, passage this morning, and uh, maybe you don't, but you will. But it might. <laughs> but, but it might not be the one that is the most traditional to go through. Um, it's actually Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one, and uh, we're going to cover part of the message this morning is going to cover this genealogy that's laid out in Matthew chapter 1. Now, we'll, we'll get there. We're not going to read through the genealogy, okay? Uh, but I'm going to talk a bit about that genealogy as well as um, talk about uh, the verses that follow in uh, verses uh, 19 uh, to the end of the chapter in verse 25 and make a quick reference to chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 12, kind of in our response to what we're going to go through uh, this morning. Every year, we read uh, the very familiar account of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we sing songs about the account of his birth and his coming into the world. And it's the same uh, we talked about this last night. It's the same Chris, Christian Christmas message of all generations that Christians have marveled at for over 2,000 years. And, and it's increasingly more uncommon in our day and age to reflect on the event that happened, whatever event you're talking about, from more than 24 hours ago. Do you, you know, any event, not just the Christian gospel, not the gospel, but any event that happens in the world, it's more and more uncommon to even think about it if it's more than 24 hours old, um, let alone something that happened over 2,000 years ago, right? Because the speed at which news travels and the, all the multiple platforms and the multimedia and all of that thing through which it comes um, can make it difficult to discern even whether the news that you are receiving is reliable, right? So it comes so fast, and you're wondering, is this even reliable? Where's all of this information coming from? And not to mention, you have to sift through all the numerous personal motivations that people have for writing things, uh, for relaying information. People will write about things for money, they'll write about it for power, they'll write about things for fame, and they'll even write about things even just to confuse, to confuse people. The amount of information com, com, coupled with the falsehoods that are mixed in to the information is unparalleled in, in history. And sometimes I wonder, how are historians 2,000 years from now going, to, if God tarries that long, Will, how will they look back at our day and age? And, and will they even be able to discern the truth from the air? Because it's just, it's just rampant, right? And then I thought, I, you can only imagine what the world would have done with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel had God sent his son into the world in the year 2022. How many different accounts, how many different messages, how many people denying, what kind of confusion would Satan and the world be pouring into the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? And thankfully, God sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world at just the right time. And Paul says in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, and of course he's talking about prophecies, but he's also just talking about at the right time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And what I love about this opening of Matthew's gospel is I love the history and the clarity and the precision that Matthew's account of Christmas, because this is Matthew's account of Christmas, I love how he lays it out here in these opening verses. And I think what Matthew wants us to see is, and this is what I want you to see, is how God orchestrated 
all of the events surrounding the birth of our Lord Jesus on Christmas, that God orchestrated all of them to bring about his plan of redemption from us. Every detail. Matthew's account of Christmas reminds us of really three things I think we can draw from that, and, and here they are. First, we're going to see that by going through this, we're going to see that God keeps his promises. That's a Christmas gift to us, beloved. We serve and love and worship a God that keeps his promises. We all desire to be promise keepers and to be faithful, but I think each of us know that at the end of the day, we are not as good at keeping our promises as we should be, but God will see he keeps his promises. And the second thing we'll see is that the promise of salvation that he made is fulfilled in God with us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He made a promise, and he fulfilled his promise in sending the Lord Jesus Christ born into the world in, in a manger. And we're going to see that. And then thirdly, we're going to see God offers this promise of salvation to sinners if they will place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a very simple gospel message, but it's important for us to remember, and that's really what Christmas comes down to. And so what I would invite you to do, if you haven't already, is turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we will read verses 17 to 25. He gives this genealogy, and picking up in verse 17, he says, So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what you have inspired by the Holy Spirit for your servant, Matthew, to write down and to record for us. We know that every word, every jot, every tittle, every, everything in your word is written there for our good and for your glory, that nothing is there in vain and for no purpose. It's not just randomly put together, but you have inspired and led your servant to write down this genealogy and to write down this account of Christmas for us so that we might have an understanding of what it means as your people and what it means for us that you have orchestrated and brought this about, O oh God. We ask that you would bless us as we hear more about your word, and you would be with my speech and my tongue, O oh God, that your people would be encouraged and strengthened and reminded of what a great and awesome God that they have been redeemed by 
and saved by. We ask for your blessing, Holy Spirit, on the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, <clears throat> I find it, again, fascinating that Matthew begins his gospel with, of all things, a genealogy, right? Why does he begin with a genealogy? Is that where you would begin if you were going to write down the most monumental story that you knew? Would you begin with writing down a genealogy? Like uh, my kids, and, uh, and I think some of your children too go uh, to this classical conversations. That's the schooling that they go to. And one of the things they learn is about writing skills. And, and I even remember learning some of this even in, in seminary where you have to create a, what's called an exordium, which is a way to pull in your listeners so that they can then give their ear to what you're about to say, right? And I look at this, and Matthew is writing down a gospel, a gospel about God incarnate coming, taking on flesh, going to a cross, and dying. And the way he begins it, he, he opens up with this genealogy. And, and I think we, we tend to think that's an odd way to do it because we kind of look at Christmas, and I think we've been trained to do this by media and television or all this stuff, but we kind of tend to look at Christmas as uh, from our perspective, if that makes sense, right? We, we read God's scripture, we tend to, we, we kind of read it with ingrown eye, eyeballs. And what that means is we like, you and me both, and it's, this is just human nature, but we like relatable facts that can apply, we can apply to ourselves. And so when we hear the Christmas story, we usually talk about we want to hear things like, what was the day like? We want to know, what, are the what were the people doing? What, who were these shepherds? What was the setting like? What, were, what was the clothing like? What did the manger look like? Did they have down covers? Who were Joseph and Mary? What, what were they like as people? What was the town of Bethlehem like? What did it look like? What, what kind of industry did it have? What did they swaddle their babies in? Why did they swaddle their babies in clothes? Who was Herod? What did Herod do? What's his background? We, we, we want to think about the Christmas story and we want to consider it from our own perspective because we want to take those pieces of the Christmas story and what we tend to want to do is we want to apply them spiritually to ourselves in some way. And let's just face it, a genealogy doesn't do it. <laughs> genealogy just doesn't speak to me. But then again, Matthew thought differently. God thought differently, and the readers of Matthew's gospel should think differently about Matthew's Christmas story. You see, they understood, and we need to understand, that behind all of these events, the manger, the birth, the shepherds, there is an author and the author is God. And the author is a God who is not just, he's not just overseeing history. That, that's a very deistic Thomas Jefferson kind of mentality where, where God kind of spins the top of the world and just lets it go. And God sort of sits up in heaven and he watches as things unfold. And he's just observing. But that's not the God that Matthew serves. That's not the God that we serve. God is not just overseeing humanity. God is actually orchestrating all of it according to his redemptive plan. 
even through, Matthew wants us to see, the genealogy of Jesus. 42 generations before Jesus was born into the world, God was orchestrating all of it. Do you know how much that is to orchestrate? 42 generations? Not just grandfather and grandmother. I'm not going to go through all of it. Great, 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 great. It just keeps going back. 42 generations and all of the children and all of the people and all of the movements and all of the places and all of the nations that rose and fell and all of the kings and everything that happened in between all of it, God was actually, Matthew is showing us in this genealogy that God was actually fulfilling what he had promised to fulfill all the way back from the beginning. But it's not just it's not just that it is a genealogy. It's a very specific genealogy for a very specific purpose. So if you'll notice in verse 1, Matthew actually begins by calling it the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now what is he what is, what is Matthew telling us when he says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ? And the interesting thing about that phrase, that Greek phrase, is that according uh, to one author I read, it can also be translated as the book of the genealogy or the book of beginning or the book of Genesis. And when you go and you read the Greek, the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it, be, it has that phrase. And the phrase is, this is the book of the generation of heaven and earth, from Genesis 2, 4. It, it's the same phrase that, that God introduces the Old Testament with. The book of the generation of heaven and earth, when they came about in the day in which God made the heaven and the earth. And that same phrase is also used in Genesis 5, verses 1 to 2, where God gives the first genealogy in the Bible, beginning with Adam and ending with Moses. Those are the only two places where that phrase occurs. And so here's the point. When Matthew opens his gospel in that way, I, I am convinced that he is alluding to Genesis, and he's making the point that what he is about to narrate for us regarding Jesus is the record of the new creation in Jesus. It is the record of the new covenant that Jesus brings. You see, the genealogy of Adam gave rise to fallen humanity. That's us. In, in our natural state, Adam's genealogy gave rise to fallen sinners. But the genealogy of Jesus gives rise to a new redeemed humanity. Jesus creates a people who were once fallen. He recreates them into his own likeness and according to his own image. And just like the Holy Spirit was involved in bringing about the creation, so Matthew tells us in verse 18 and 20 that the Holy Spirit is involved in bringing about the new creation in Christ. You notice we read that in verses 18 and 20. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew ties it all together, all of the Old Testament together with three sets of 14 generations. We see Abraham, the father of the Messiah, David, the forerunner of the Messiah. Then we see the exile and the need for a Messiah. And the thing is this, through all of it, God gave a promise of a coming Messiah from the very beginning, Genesis 3.15. And then he uttered, God uttered the promise of an offspring 
And then 2,100 years before Christ, God chose one family. And the family that he chose was Abraham's. From all the nations of the world, he chose Abraham and said, I will bless you. And he said, from your offspring, Isaac, and your descendants, including Jacob, who he later named Israel, the Lord would, the world would be blessed. And here's the promise he gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 22 verse 18, God says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so God gives promise in Genesis 3.15 and a promise to Abraham. An idolater. Another millennium later, around 1000 BC, God chose David to be the king over Israel. Not only would the Messiah be a descendant of Abraham, but he's also going to be a king. And he's going to be a king according to the line of David. King David is called a god after man, man, uh, a man after God's own heart, and he's far from perfect. He commits adultery, he puts Uriah to death, and this leads to his demise in the later years of his reign. And so God told David that neither he nor his son Solomon, who was likewise filled with sin, would be king. And he gives David this promise. 2 Samuel 7, verse 9. I will make of you a great name, God told King David, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What a promise. A promise to Abraham. A, a promise given to King David of a king that's going to come from his line. And of course, what happens after he makes this promise to David? Things get bad for Israel. They get really bad. The kingdom is divided. Saul, after Solomon's death, the northern and the southern kingdoms are, divide, are divided. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. They're conquered by foreign powers. They're taken into exile. And the Assyrian exile in 722 B.C. destroys the north. Then the Babylonian exile in three waves from 606 to 586. And so God's judgment falls on Israel because of their sin and because of their disobedience, just like God warned them it would. And after 70 years in exile in Babylon, some return to the land, but the glory that Israel had before was completely gone. And then the question becomes this, if you're the prophets, but God, what about your promise in Genesis 3.15? God, what about the promise that you made to Abraham that you would send an offspring and bless the nations? God, what about your promise of a king who would come in the line of David and sit on the throne and rule forever? God, you are supposed to be a God who is faithful to your promises. What of those promises, God? And so then God sends the prophets to them. And in the midst of their darkness... And in the midst of their shame and in the midst of their rebellion against him, he gives them another promise. And he tells them this in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and 6 and 7. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's saying, I will be faithful to all of my promises. Don't worry. It's coming. Micah 2, Micah 5, 2 to 5. O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, who is to, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth." and he shall be their peace. And so Matthew concludes his genealogy with the promised Messiah, and he says, listen, all of these people and all of this history, Matthew says, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, from David to the deportation were 14, and from the deportation to Babylon, uh, to the Christ, were 14 generations. All of it. God, Christmas is not an isolated event in history. Jesus is the culmination of promises that God made to redeem a people for himself. Beloved, Christmas is God's story. It's not yours. It's not mine. We don't make Christmas into whatever we want Christmas to be. Christmas is God's story of redemption. And this genealogy, it just, it just blows me away to think that he's over all of it. And what it tells us is that God is faithful, God is faithful to keep his promises, and that means even the promises that he has still made of a future. He kept them in the past, and he will keep them in the future. And the promise to redeem is, is the promise that we see in Christ. It wasn't just the coming of a specific seed, but the promise was that this seed would bring salvation with him. And that's the second point. God keeps his promises, and the promise of salvation is fulfilled in God with us. Now, one of the things to note about this passage is if you were going to put a genealogy together and highlight your kinship, who would you highlight? What kind of people would you highlight in your genealogy? My guess is you would do what most people would do, is you would highlight all of the nobility. Oh, you know, my lineage, I have, my lineage had a, a, a great general in it. My lineage had, you know what, uh, the 10th president of the United States was in my lineage, not really. It'd have to be Romania. But they don't have presidents, they had dictators, so. <laughs> Who would you highlight? Influencers, generals, kings, nobility. And Matthew doesn't do that, and, and I think Nick made reference to this 
in his uh, scripture reading how thankful he is to see the frailty, frailty of man in the scripture. Because what Matthew highlights here is four really important names. He highlights four women. Tamar, who's Tamar? She's the one who seduced Judah, her father-in-law. He highlights Rahab. Who's Rahab? She's a pagan prostitute. He highlights Ruth. Who's Ruth? She's a Gentile among Moabites, and Moabites were those who were in bitter opposition to Israelites. And he highlights Bathsheba. Though Jewish, she was likely regarded as a Hittite because she was married to Uriah, a Hittite, and furthermore, she has an adulterous affair with David. He could have included Sarah, he could have included Rebecca, he could have included some notable women, but he includes these four. Matthew includes in the genealogy of Jesus prostitutes, princes, and aliens of Israel. Why? Not just to show that Jesus is, has a humble lineage and background like we do, but I think to point to the fact that Jesus came to do what? Matthew 1.21, to save his people from their sins. Jesus was born to save his people, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, to save the lowly, to save prostitutes and lepers and drug addicts and alcoholics and perverts, to save those who are enslaved to all kinds of passions that they have in the world and the lusts that drive them. Jesus was born to save adulterers. Jesus was born to save thieves and criminals and murderers. Jesus was born to save you and me, beloved. He was born to redeem us and to take us out of our fallen nature. And this is why Matthew puts Bathsheba and Tamar and Rahab and Ruth in the genealogy. Because Jesus is the Savior of all of those who would turn to him and repent of their sin and come to the Messiah of promise who was given to redeem them. And it is in him that all of those blessings given to Abraham and to David are fulfilled. And that's why, that's why it's not a surprise when Joseph and Mary give birth to Jesus that they're told to name him Jesus. Because Jesus is the Greek form of the word Joshua, and the word Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is saves. And so all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. It is in Jesus that we utter our amen to the glory of God. And so Matthew quotes from Isaiah 7:14 and he says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our exile, Isaiah says the Savior is going to be born to a virgin, and this he fulfilled by sending Jesus to be born just as he promised by the Virgin Mary in an insignificant town like Bethlehem where Emmanuel, God with us, is born in a stable. This is who Jesus is. 
born in the world of our darkness, to sit on the throne of the King of Kings, to restore David's line, to redeem his people, so that we might be with him forever. Now, lots of people celebrate Christmas, and lots of people understand the incarnation. And in a world that believes, and maybe some believe and hold to that, they take, there's a sort of a, there's a sort of a beauty about it, right? That God takes on humanity. He takes on flesh and he dwells among us and he shares in our flesh and our blood and our bone and everything that made a body he had, a mind, a heart, a memory, imagination, judgment, making judgments. Everything that makes a rational man, Jesus was. Christ Jesus was the man of men. He was the second Adam, a model representative. He was from, he was born very man, and yet we know that he is very God, Emmanuel. And this really, to the world can believe that, but you want to know where Christmas and that truth takes a turn? You want to know where the path between God's people and the world split? It splits at the cross. You see, for Jesus to come into the world, for God to take on flesh, is a great story. It's, it's wonderful to imagine that God would be and come to be like us. But it's only wonderful because the God who came to be with us went to the cross to purchase our redemption. If Jesus is born and he doesn't go to the cross, we have no hope. And that's our last point. Christmas means there's hope for sinners to be reconciled to God. Hebrews 2, 14 to 16 puts it like this. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Christ took on flesh that he might atone for our sins, that he might die in our place, that he might deliver us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This is the promise fulfilled in Christ. And I want you to know, beloved, this morning, that God with you in Christ, if you have believed in him and he's come to dwell with you, it means that he is with you in your weakness and in your fear. Forever. He is with you in all of your trials, in all of your suffering, and in your coming death. How's that for a Christmas message? You and I will die. And when we close our eyes and our lisping, stammering tongue ceases to speak, Christ is with you. And he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. He is with you in your sojourning. He is there to protect you. He's there to deliver you. He's there to comfort you and to give you joy. And he's there for your hope. If you are in Christ, you know what? We live in a world that is becoming, it seems, more and more hopeless. But because of Christmas, because Christ came to redeem you, you have hope. And the hope that he promises is that he will come to bring you with him forever in glory. That's why the wise men, 
when they heard about the birth of Jesus, these Gentiles, what did they do? They left everything. They said, we are going to go and see this child born. That ought to be our response, beloved, in Christmas. Come to Christ, love him, be thankful to him. Don't be like Herod. Herod was was the one who heard the story about Jesus and, and, the, and Jerusalem did. And rather than coming to find the baby, Jesus, you know what they were worried about? They were worried that if, they, if this child is born, they would lose all of their earthly treasures. They were, they were threatened by the arrival of Jesus in the world. This Jesus is going to ruin my life. That's what they thought. You know why some churches canceled Christmas service? Because Jesus got in the way of their family time. Really? That's how valuable Jesus is to the world. That we would rather exchange the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and coming before him and and pursuing him for whatever the, man, I just want to use not real nice language, whatever the junk that the world offers to us, how quick are we to embrace the trash of this world for the exchange of Jesus? We would rather be anywhere than in the house of God and worshiping worshiping Christ Almighty. That should be a shame, and it should never be on the lips of God's children of all people. If we don't see Christ for who he is as professing Christians, then what is the world going to think of him? And so Herod unsettled by Jesus, but the Magi, they couldn't have enough of them. Beloved, let that be your call to be like the Magi, filled with joy and thanksgiving and adoration and obedience to this Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas, God keeps his promises, beloved, even when we doubt. Christmas, God came to be with us and to offer the promise of salvation even to the worst of sinners. Christmas, he offers himself to you this morning as your Savior. We'll close with this. If you are still on the outside of Christmas looking in, you haven't come to Christ, I want you to know that there is hope for you. You're not too far. There is hope for hurting and broken sinners. There's hope for helpless, lonely souls. There's hope for idolaters. There's hope for social outcasts. There's hope for prostitutes. There's hope for the joyless There's hope for the proud. There's hope for the selfish. There's hope for the disobedient. There's hope for those who dwell in darkness. There's hope for those who practice homosexuality, who are transgender. There's hope for those who are adulterers. There's hope for those who are fornicators. There's hope for those who are addicted to pornography. There's hope for those who are addicted to fentanyl. There's hope for those who are addicted to all kinds of drugs. There is hope to be redeemed from the the sadness and the depression of your life. There is hope for those who think they're righteous and they're not. And the hope that is offered to you is only found in this baby born in a manger. And his name is Jesus. And he came to die for the sins of his people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And Jesus says, all of you who are heavy laden and burdened by your sin, he says, come unto me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for this Christmas morning. A Christmas morning that we can reflect on your story, on your history. To see how you have orchestrated all things according to the perfect plan of redemption that you have laid out from before the foundation of the world to bring salvation to a fallen humanity. To see how you have orchestrated even the very parents and generations that preceded the coming Christ. That wherever they went, whatever they did, however they lived, oh God, you were working through all of it in order to bring about the fulfillment of this greatest promise which is found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, how thankful we are that you humbled yourself to take on flesh that you loved us in such a way that you were willing to come and to do for us what we could not do on our own. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were so patient with us, that even as we in this room walked in our own rebellion and in our own sin, that you have shown mercy to us, that you have shown grace to us, Oh, Lord Jesus, we know that we are not a deserving people. We know that we have no righteousness of our own and no goodness of our own. We know, Lord Jesus, that we walk in darkness apart from you. And if we were to count all of our sin, we would be overwhelmed by the amount of it. We were dead, Lord Jesus, and you gave us life. We were blind and you gave us sight. We were deaf to your truth and you gave us ears to hear. All of the glory of our salvation, Lord Jesus, belongs to you. For you were born for that purpose, that you might save your people from their sins. And we rejoice in that, Jesus, and thank you that you have redeemed us. We know, O oh Lord, that we live in a world that is in rebellion against you, even this Christmas. Oh God, we pray for, the, for this nation and we pray for the kings and the rulers of all other nations. We pray that this gospel truth would be brought to bear upon their hearts and their minds, that they would see the emptiness of their pursuits of power and fame and treasure in this world that they would repent of their sin and recognize that they will have to give an account to the King of Kings who sits on the throne and rules heaven and earth. Oh God, may our nation turn from its sin and rebellion and darkness toward you. May it turn in repentance, oh God, and may you bring a revival even into this nation where sinners recognize that they are lost without the child born in a manger 2,000 years ago who would grow and die for the sins of the world. May you bring repentance into this nation, O oh God. Like you saved Nebuchadnezzar and transformed Nineveh, O oh God, may you bring salvation to this country and may you use us as tools in your hand to proclaim the truth, to pray for the lost, and to share the gospel. Lord, this really is the best news in the world. Sometimes we take it for granted. 
we take Christmas for granted and we take the season for granted and we, we don't see that what we have in our hands as Simeon picked up the Lord Jesus Christ is the most precious gift that could ever be given. Thank you for, for giving us your son. And thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. Thank you for all of the promises that you have blessed us with. For giving us the forgiveness of our sin as you promised. For giving us new hearts as you promised. For giving us a new spirit of life as you promised. For taking us out of the dungeon and giving us your kingdom as you promised. Thank you that you have given us a promise of everlasting life. Thank you, O oh God, that you have promised not to leave us here, but to come back and to take us home to be with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going before us and preparing a place for us. Thank you for all of the things, O oh God, that you are doing in the world. Thank you for being so faithful and to move and act in this world and in our lives in such a glorious way. Thank you for forgiving us of our ignorance of those things when we complain about the way that our lives are going. When we complain that things aren't going as we planned and and yet you so patiently continue to move history forward and even our own lives forward in a way that, that is actually good for us and that brings you glory. Thank you, O oh God, for loving us, for being a good father and a good provider, for showing us patience. O oh God, we pray that you would help us to be a people that are set apart for your glory and for your love. That we would be a people that stand apart from this world. That we would be a holy people set apart to you. Set apart unto your work and set apart unto the cause of Christ. That we would not be a people that are dragged away from from church services with, to spend with you or from our families, that we would not get tired of praying and we would not get tired of singing. Help us to be a people that love the Lord Jesus. We ask for your blessing on this day. We thank you for Christmas. We pray for the lost and ask for your will to be done. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.